One commentator calls it post-human architecture, the network of tunnels Finland has carved out inside the earth, a third of a mile down and in, because, as they say, conditions above ground are unstable. An article in this month's Atlantic magazine called What Lies Beneath tells the story in brief how back in 1980, Finland began plans to build a permanent repository for the waste from its nuclear plants. They wanted permanent storage, a system that would last 100,000 years, as long as spent fuel is dangerous. Back then, nearly 40 years ago, the Finns thought they'd wait for other nations to develop their plans and then borrow the best ideas. But other nations' plans stalled, including ours, and so nuclear waste worldwide is still stored in temporary accident-prone facilities, facilities. But Finland, population five and a half million, less than the Houston, Texas metro area, carried on with their meticulous tasks, exploring, imagining, researching, consensus building, constructing, till now Finland is the only nation with a nearly completed permanent repository, and in two years the storage will begin. So imagine off the west coast of Finland, on an island in the Baltic Sea, among the towering pines, a giant garage door opens and a wide driveway takes us down, down 1,500 meters, about 14 football fields into 1.8 billion year old seamless bedrock, the most stable environment we know. There in caves, in cave-like tunnels, the dangerous spent fuel rods will be housed. They will have been packed into 25-ton cast-iron canisters, then the canisters put into thick sleeves of pure copper, then the whole thing sealed with bentonite clay that will absorb any water that might leak in. It would take, they figure, millions of years for groundwater to eat through the canisters, and by then the nuclear waste will be degraded to the point of safety. In the year 2100, when this place has reached storage capacity, it will be sealed with thick cement and then left alone. No oversight, no guards, no markers. Let the surrounding forest grow and cover this place in hopes it will be, over the ages, forgotten. They did decide against any kind of marker, believing that any sign we would leave in our language or even pictures saying, don't dig here, would only arouse curiosity <laughs> in people or whatever we are in 5,000 years. And the sign might as well say, dig here. <laughs> Though they did consider seriously using uh, Edvard Munch's Munch, The Scream. <laughs> the Atlantic article led me to a full-length documentary about this undertaking. In the 2010 film called Into Eternity, we learn more about the project, meet the scientists and engineers, witness the high-tech underground operations, 
This film starts with a view of caribou roaming among tall pines, nibbling tufts of grass that stick up through the snow, and the camera then takes us down the long driveway to the tunnel while a man's voice says, you are now entering a place where we have buried something from you to protect you. We have taken great pain to make sure you are protected. He's speaking so carefully as if to be understood by those of us listening centuries from now. He says, this is not a place for you to live in. You should stay away from this place and then you will be safe. Then the screen goes black because we've reached the depths. We're in the nuclear tomb. And in the darkness, we suddenly see who the voice belongs to because the man strikes a long match and it casts angled light on his face. He says, I am now in this place where you should never come. We call it Onkalo. Onkalo means hiding place. Work began when I was just a child. Work will be completed long after my death. He tells us, Onkalo must last 100,000 years. Nothing built by humanity has lasted even a tenth of that time. But we consider ourselves a very potent civilization. If we succeed, Onkalo will likely be the longest lasting remains of our civilization. As the match flickers and dims, he says, if you, sometime far into the future, find this, what will it tell you about us? Then the flame dies and we are again in blackness. It is eerie and sobering and beautiful to me to see him trying to communicate to us across millennia, millennia saying, essentially, saying in spirit, we imperfect searching creatures have done what we have done. In our time, we have created a new kind of fire for better and for worse, and we wish you not to be burned by it. You, whoever you are centuries from now, we are expecting you. You are real to us. And now this, what we do here in this place, we do in care of you, and for times we shall never see. I'm with you today in this worship hour for several reasons. Because your ministers, Justin and Jen and Ruth and Elaine, invited me, reason enough. What a gifted group of clergy leaders you have. They are like a fine string quartet, each essential, each attuned to his and her particular calling. And I'm here because it's been a while and we share history and it's time. And I'm here because of what you all are up to and how much it matters. All your collective projects, families moving forward, the house that love built, the ways you are taking on matters of racial justice and white body 
privilege, the ways you're addressing issues of economic justice inside and outside your church home. All of this in addition to your weekly rounds of worship and learning and caring. And of course, your capital campaign, which as I understand it, has to do with your readiness to make this home space even more beautifully useful and your commitment to sharing your home fully and freely with your neighbors. It is a bold and timely affirmation of your mission. When Reverend Justin Schroeder phoned me about joining you today, he said your October worship theme is outsiders, and he also graciously said, feel free to ignore it. <laughs> so I will, mostly, except to say the outsiders theme reminded me of that old rule of life, living things need an inside and an outside. It's one of the rules one of the 16 principles that have guided the evolution of organic life on our planet, living things, need an inside and an outside. Almost two decades ago, I stood here and spoke about that rule, a rule that hasn't changed. I won't give that sermon today, but I will say how it started and how it ended. First, I said that in the evolution of organic life, insides and outsides began with a single cell, the smallest thing that's born lives and dies. And apparently cells didn't always have an inside and an outside. It's thought that far back in evolution, cells were inside out. They were like flat noodles floating in plasma soup. Then at some point they folded themselves around some of the soup. They became more like ravioli with precious contents inside, organs of respiration, small factories of various kinds, and at the heart of it, the nucleus, the ancient reference library. Cells became enclosed in membranes to maintain the integrity of their inner work. Outsides make it possible for important work to go on inside. So the apple tree needs its covering of bark, the oyster needs its shell, the congregation needs its house. The human body needs a skin. You're in that skin, I'm in this skin. There is no way for me in this skin to know exactly what it's like for you in that skin. That sermon got around, finally, to the ways we listen to each other um, in the year 2000. We were just beginning to explore the kind of small group work, the circles, that's become through the loving efforts of many here and supported by Reverend Elaine's graceful leadership, foundational to this congregation. Back then, I was reflecting on the challenges of really listening to each other and how becoming an attentive listener to those outside me involves paradoxically getting to know the voices inside me, the committee of me that so reliably enjoys its own crosstalk and finding ways to politely, if possible, invite it to chill so I can attend to what this other person in this other skin is offering. Here again is today's reading from Proverbs of Ashes. Let us say, life shows us the face of God only in fleeting glimpses by the light 
of night fires in dancing shadows, in departing ghosts, and in recollections of steady love. Let us say it is enough. Enough to run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Enough for us to stand against violence. Enough for, for us to hold one another in benediction and blessing. Enough to persevere on the path, to refuse violence, to hold one another in love. Recently, over at our sister church, Unity Unitarian in St. Paul, I was going through the receiving line after worship greeting in that line five clergy people, Rob and Jan Eller Isaacs, Lisa Friedman, and the interns from here, Arif Mamdani and Andrea Johnson, and I thought to use one of Reverend Mackenzie's tasty expletives, Lordy Lucas, this is great. <laughs> this is rich, this cross-pollination among our congregations and this gender balance. I'm now at an age when I and a good number of you here today can say that when it comes to our liberal tradition, we have seen some evolution. Like the folks in the farmer's insurance commercial, we can say, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. <laughs> Not a wandering moose bringing down a swing set at an RV park, but some wildish decades pushing through, breaking through some long-standing assumptions and ways of being. Back in 1980, when I first met our three inner-city congregations, First Unitarian Society, Unity in St. Paul, and you. Each seemed theologically and otherwise quite self-contained. Each was represented by one white male minister, and none of these men represented any letter of the LGBTQI alphabet. In 1980, the line of letters was shorter. In the words of Anne Reed, G was pretty much it. As far as I could tell, the three ministers got together only once a year for something like a public panel discussion. And back then, Reverend John Cummins told me, these three town congregations were characterized in shorthand as the thinking church, the praying church, and the feeling church. <laughs> now these three congregations are less like ravioli. Uh, they regularly leak into one another and thinking and feeling and something like praying happen all over town. And these days are many, eight, 10 metro area congregations, depending on how you map it, like to mix it up and can be found marching together and mourning together and learning together and also partnering with other Twin Cities organizations to multiply all our strengths. It is an evolution I treasure. And it's a never-ending learning curve we travel. It's a slow and humbling coming to greater consciousness. At times, it feels like chipping away at something like 1.8 billion year old bedrock. We hope to be teachable as we seek to become more aware of how it is to live in another's skin. For instance, we try to remember and acknowledge aloud when we say, run with perseverance, 
and stand against violence, that there are those beloved among us for whom running and standing aren't on the list of physical options. And when we put out the call to serve and march and volunteer, that there are those beside us and those who are us who dwell in depression's dark room and for whom the decision to live one more day takes all the protest strength we have and is the one yes to life we can summon. There's a word the people of Finland use to describe a cultural characteristic they claim. Sisu, S-I-S-U, a word that's considered to have no literal English equivalent. Sisu is passion plus grit plus resilience. It's often used to describe the Finnish resistance to the Soviet invasion of 1939 and 40, the Winter War, when Finnish troops so agile on their snow skis outmaneuvered all that Russian heavy equipment. Sisu, the closest English we have is probably guts. Guts and passion for a long-term goal. Sisu is something that is possible for us. It is possible for us to keep unbinding our language, loosening our categories, enlarging our understanding, all to give life's variety and abundance room to move and breathe. It is possible for us to set our intention to simply keep going with our imperfect efforts to honor life and further justice as we move forward, slip back, catch up, show up, standing or sitting or kneeling, to do what we can do, not what we can't do, to move in the direction of our best hopes. No guarantees. The whole thing is not to quit. To persevere, it is enough. And to stand against violence, that is, to refuse violence. This is an enduring part of our heritage. A thousand years ago, when popes and some, not all Christians, but some Christians felt threatened by the presence of Muslims in the West, they cooked up a theology that sanctioned violence. It went, an angry God required the violent death of an innocent victim, his son, in order to save the world. Resting on this reasoning, which justified the murder of innocents, they then launched the Crusades. The theology undergirding the Crusades later came to our shores in the form of Calvinism, and it still lives. Rebecca Parker, co-author of Proverbs of Ashes, reminds us that we Unitarian Universalists belong to a heritage of those who, faced with a violence-glorifying theology, have said, you've got to be kidding. That is not who God is. Dissenters, we have been voices of dissent. We have said no to violence, no and again no. We have said no because we have a yes. My old professor used to say, let your no protect the sanctity of your yes. We've said no because there's something we've promised to do. 
there's something we've promised to protect. These words are from a poem by Laurie Sheck called To Softness. Under junk heaps and stripped and burning cars and bombed out buildings, under U.S. steel and Coca-Cola and the bridge repainted silver to cover all the black graffitied hearts and birds and names, beneath underpass and overpass, under timetables, profitability summits, under for your own good and in our best interest, under leveraged buyouts, arms deals, and rates of exchange, it must be there, like an ash heap, but alive, like a veil, a half-formed thought throbbing its slow pulse behind the lips, a softness a tenderness, a hand turning pages through the night in a bare room, eyes at the window, breath at the door, something in need of protection, something capable of feeling harm. In their book, Proverbs of Ashes, Parker and Brock say, those who cannot grieve fail to recognize when life is at risk. At present, we have people in positions of power who seem to have lost the capacity to grieve, who don't have ears to hear the voices of those at risk, and who don't pause to raise their fists and listen. Remember those hundreds of helpers who showed up following the September earthquake in central Mexico. Everyone knew what to bring. They brought water, they brought portable tables for elevating the wounded, buckets for taking rubble away. They all pitched in, helmeted rescue workers, neighbors, families, many digging with their bare hands, hefting slabs of concrete and metal and glass, and then the shouting and the cheering when a child was brought out alive. And then how the noise and din of the digging would be halted by that gesture as rescuers raised both fists high, the signal everyone knew and joined, fists up meant silence. And in the hush, the whole community listened again for any voice, any life, any faint cry coming from out of the rubble, from under, from deep inside, a softness a tenderness, eyes at the window, breath at the door, something in need of protection, something capable of feeling harm. The part of us that is capable of feeling harm is also the part that's capable of creating great beauty and serving with great love. In our living universalist tradition, the truth we have chosen is this. We say, when we descend into the depths of ourselves, when we travel down into the ancient bedrock of ourselves to find what lies beneath, down, down to the place where we can stand and strike a match, we find there is already there a light. This is what our handed-down heritage has bet its life on. We say yes to what lies beneath, not something dangerous to life, but something on which our life together depends. 
And when we say in our first Unitarian Universalist principle, we respect the inherent worth and dignity of each person, that is code. That is code. Those words are a marker sign pointing to something, pointing to what Parker and Brock call the luminous depths, the mystery for which we have no adequate word, not in Finnish, not in English, our tender, radiant, capable souls and our belonging to one another. This we hold in benediction and blessing. Jen summed it up recently when she said, we are made for love. Hebrew scripture says it too, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. This community, you here, this is where the rhythm of the raised fists can carry on. The call to listen, then work, listen, dig, listen. Here we don't signal silence with fists up, but with bell and with song and with words that can be prayers. Then we pause to hear not only the voices of the hurting, but also voices of the helpers and healers and voices of thanks. And for the briefest moment, something all the way down in the nucleus of each of ourselves may remember a time when there were no bounding membranes and we were not separated skin from skin or heart from heart. Let's take a moment of silence now, and may we include in our silence an inner bow to those who will come long after us as a way of saying, we are expecting you, and what we do, we do in care of you, and for times we shall never see. I'll close our silence with a word.